Friday the 14th of January began much like many other morning over the last four weeks. But the day will go down in Tunisia's history as the culmination of unprecedented protests. Protests which ultimately forced the president from power, an office he had held firmly for 23 years. A poor 23-year-old Tunisian vegetable seller, probably the person who changed the world the most in 2011, although he wasn't alive to see it himself. His name was Mohamed Bouazizi. Twelve years ago, the act of a young street vendor who set himself on fire precipitated a massive regional uprising that became known as the Arab Spring. He was protesting government corruption because the police were harassing him and demanding bribes. He was from Tunisia, and his actions inspired waves of demonstrations across the Middle East. Since then, Tunisia has weathered many more political crises, But for a brief and optimistic period a few years ago, the country was hailed as one of the few to have made a peaceful transition from the Arab Spring. Things have worsened significantly since. A few days ago, on January 29th, Tunisia held its parliamentary runoffs and the turnout was a mere 11%. That means only one in nine eligible voters voted in the elections. Media reports cite that people were disillusioned with what's happening in the country and chose not to vote. Last month's parliamentary election saw 11% of voters cast ballots. It was meant to reshape the legislature dissolved by the president after he seized executive powers in July 2021. But now Kai Saeed is under pressure from growing opposition groups and anger on the street. Now, for many, this was yet another sign of things going in the wrong direction for Tunisia, a North African country that occupies a thin strip of land between Algeria and Libya. The Global Organized Crime Index has placed Tunisia in a category where both criminality and resilience are low. But recent developments have raised alarm bells. Over the past two years, five out of ten categories of criminal markets particularly human smuggling, have seen increases, while the country's resilient scores fell further. So we're essentially looking at a situation where criminality is rising, while the capacity of institutions and actors to prevent that is reducing. Of course, Tunisia is geographically closer to Italy than to its neighbours in southern Africa, which means irregular migration from Tunisia across the Mediterranean is a new phenomenon. But the numbers have been going up since 2020, even before the global pandemic hit. And experts say that political instability is a key factor fueling this phenomenon. So how does human smuggling work in Tunisia? And how is it different from elsewhere? What factors beyond politics contributed to the current situation we're seeing? Well, these are the questions we're trying to answer in this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative against transnational organized crime, where we're talking about human smuggling in Tunisia with two experts. We have Matt Herbert, a senior expert on transnational organized crime and irregular migration, and Tasneen Abdurrahim, an analyst who's born and bred in Tunisia. Both of them work at the North Africa and Sahel Observatory, which is part of the global initiative against transnational organized crime. I'm your host, Dana Wynn. 
to get our conversation started on Tunisia, I asked Tasnim to explain the reasons behind increased criminality in the country. Organized crime threats in Tunisia remain comparably limited, but it's true at the same time that organized crime that is a fast-evolving phenomenon. So I think the, the growth of some criminal markets in Tunisia, particularly human smuggling, isn't particularly surprising in that sense because the development of this phenomenon is closely linked to Tunisia's difficult and challenging domestic and regional context, which has a direct impact on the, on the dynamics of organized crime in the country. So, so basically over the past few years, we have seen that Tunisia has faced mounting economic and political challenges. This was a result of a combination of factors, including structural economic and governance challenges that even predate the 2011 revolution. Of course, these challenges were exacerbated by the impact of the COVID-19 dynamic, which increased, for instance, unemployment numbers. So so as a result of that evolving context, some forms of organized crime have, have expanded, particularly human smuggling, which is not a new phenomenon per se, but it has grown in size and importance in, in, in recent years. In addition to the to the domestic context, Tunisia's regional context, particularly the, the porous borders with both Algeria and, and Libya, accentuate challenges in terms of organized crime. We see, for instance, that border smuggling of illicit and illicit goods remain a main challenge for, for the country. Thanks, Tasnim. But what about you? Do you also um, agree with Tasnim in that perhaps this is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a surprise? And can you also perhaps tell us what are the factors that may have, you know, caused this increase as well? I completely agree with what Tasnim flagged. I think that if you look at the economic situation in Tunisia, and especially the lived economic situation for many Tunisians, It's become increasingly difficult since 2017, and in particular since the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic. You've seen heightened inflation, difficulty in creating broad-based employment by the government, really a a difficult situation that, that many individuals are dealing with. And so what you do see is that that has driven some people into informal economic markets, into smuggling. That's important to note, as Tasnim said, that in general, organized crime within Tunisia remains relatively limited, especially in comparison to what you see next door in Libya. But at the same time, smuggling of some goods, especially food, fuel, cigarettes, and some types of medicines and uh, illicit narcotics have increased, as has the desire to leave which has led to an increase in both regular and irregular migration from the country. Just one final point that I think is also important to to flag on Tunisia, and that's its geographic position. It's right in the middle of kind of the, the southern Mediterranean rim, very close to Italy, but also it stretches down fairly deep into the Sahara. And so you have connections into organized crime routes that transect Algeria, that transect Libya, bringing all sorts of various goods. And because of its position close to Europe, there's a real feasibility for organized crime actors to to leverage that, to move goods through the country under the, the right circumstances. And I think that what we've seen over the course of the last three years is that the combination of circumstances within Tunisia have kind of moved it from a position where it was 
a latent place where organized crime actors could engage to one where they're actively looking to exploit it in order to move uh, various products from Africa to Europe and from Europe to Africa. Great. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's a great point um, about its geographical location, very strategic, right? And perhaps, like you said, you know, that's what makes quite a good place for shifting both products and I guess humans as well, right? So let's focus on human smuggling, which is the activity that has seen the most increase in Tunisia. Tasnim, can you explain to us how how it works? You know, how does the human smuggling works in Tunisia? As in, you know, how how do people recruit their victims? How much does it cost? I mean, what are the steps that are involved in this? So as 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 uh, we we said at the beginning, human this human smuggling business in Tunisia isn't isn't particularly new. This phenomenon has existed for um, several decades now, but it's true that it continues to expand and evolve. Usually, for people interested in irregular migration, then they tend to contact smugglers through through different means, basically through facilitators, through middlemen who are often known in their neighborhoods, who are easy to reach out. To in in different ways, Mo- mostly this contact happens in person, in in cafes, in in the street where the migrant would um, approach the middleman and ask for certain information about particularly the price and if there is an upcoming sea crossing. Uh, usually, migrants try to identify trusted middlemen and trusted smugglers. So basically, you see that those potential migrants would try to, to 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 inquire about about middlemen and smugglers through friends or family members or or peers who have been who have already made it to Europe and have gone through that that experience. So in in terms of of the prices, they they tend to vary across different embarkation points along the uh, the Tunisian coast, but around Roughly, they they average between four thousand and eight thousand Tunisian dinars. Of course, usually prices tend to decrease during the winter season because that's when demand for for migration increases and prices naturally go up during the summer season, which is the high season for uh, for irregular migration in in the country. And so basically, the, the fact that demand for migration is for irregular migration is very high in Tunisia, either among Tunisians or among also foreign regular migrants, this means that usually smugglers do not have to make great efforts to recruit prospective migrants because because what, what happens is 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 rather the opposite. It's the migrants reaching out to middlemen and um, and smugglers. Tasnim, I heard you said that it cost about between four thousand to eight thousand Tunisian dinars. Could you tell us how much would that be in in dollars, US dollars, for example? Yes, the price of uh, of the journey in US dollars would be around one thousand five hundred and between three thousand US dollars. Is that considered quite expensive, considering you know the average salary or income in Tunisia? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the as I said, like the prices of sea crossings tend to, to to differ, but even the minimum, which is around four thousand dinars, which is around one thousand five hundred US dollars, is is still expensive. Especially that the minimum wage in uh, in Tunisia does not exceed eight hundred dinars or two hundred fifty fifty dollars. But usually, for 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 those people who plan, who intend on 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 taking the sea crossing, there is usually a process of 
saving up for the journey, which can take um, several months or or several years. In some cases, uh, migrants can rely on on, on their families to, to contribute and fund part of of the trip. But we have seen also in recent years that it's not just individual migrants who are embarking on this, on these journeys. We are seeing an increasing numbers uh, of families and and minors. So in many cases, migration becomes a family project. It's not just uh, an individual uh, project. And some families can even uh, resort to selling a parcel of land or a house to finance the, the journey for the whole family. And actually, the, the if you look at the impact of, of the economic crisis on, on interest and ability to actually undertake those journeys, for, 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 for many migrants, the difficulties in, in finding jobs or, or having jobs that, that, that provide them with an adequate pay means that they usually tend or to postpone their plans for migration for several years to, to, to gain some time to collect the needed amount. Great. Thank you so much. That's great. Matt, I want to come to you next. How are human smuggling networks in Tunisia different from others? Are they? Well, they're certainly different from the, the human smuggling networks that we see across the border in Libya. And if you look at Libya, you see fairly hierarchic, powerful organizations that are often linked into the various armed groups that control areas along Libya's shoreline. Now, in Tunisia, you don't really see that. You certainly see organizations that are enduring, that could have a half dozen members or so. But at the same time, you don't see the sort of exclusivity around territory in Tunisia that you do see in Libya. So you can have a number of small smuggling networks that are working in roughly the same area, uh, all of which are essentially coexisting. Another important issue to point out is that human smuggling networks in Tunisia are oftentimes quite basic, which means that they can solidify out of individuals that live in littoral areas, fishermen, others, that move into human smuggling either to to make money as uh, as a vocation or as a way to get through difficult economic times. Now, what this means is that human smuggling networks are highly resilient in Tunisia. The human smuggling ecosystem is highly resilient. The arrest of any given smuggler, even a, a high level smuggler, is unlikely to substantially put a dent into the uh, the activities and the departures uh, by human smugglers from Tunisia's shoreline, simply because there are so many small smuggling networks out there. And it's so easy for individuals to, to become involved in in that trade. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess small and nimble and therefore are able to also probably, I'm assuming, quite adaptable. Tasnim, can you tell us about this phenomenon called self-smuggling, which I understand is actually quite common in Tunisia? Self-smuggling has actually started to to emerge a couple of years back. So basically, this form of smuggling, what what usually the process often involves group migrants who would come together, usually people coming from same families or same neighborhoods or their friends. So they know each other to, um, to, to a certain extent. They would decide on taking the journey. And in order to do that, they would pool together their money 
procure the boat, which they can do mostly through a boat agent or through a smuggler who would provide them with the boat. And then they would embark completely autonomously. So they would set the departure time and location, or in some cases, they can resort to to smugglers to obtain such information, to get recommendations about the best times of departure and locations. Usually within these groups, you will find people who are familiar with the sea, who have good knowledge of the sea and good knowledge of how to pilot a boat. So one of the migrants on board would be tasked with piloting the boat. Other elements or materials that they would procure is definitely the fuel for the boat and some life jackets in some cases. Um, so basically, this this form of smuggling has has emerged due to different reasons. I mean, the, the, the maybe a key reason is the growing distrust of smugglers, where a lot of people feel that in, in their experiences, smugglers, for example, uh, promise a certain type of a boat, a certain number of people on board the boat, but then on the day of the embarkation, they find that the boat, for example, is in, in poor quality or it's overcrowded, which increases the um, the risk of, of shipwrecks. So to avoid those risks, a lot of people or like now prefer uh, relying on themselves completely rather than resorting to the to the services of smugglers. And because of increasing knowledge about smuggling and, and how it works, the process becomes easier to, 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 to prepare. So usually people interested in this form of smuggling, they have good knowledge of how to go about organizing this journey. So many prospective migrants, they feel that this is a safer form uh, of smuggling and they prefer it to going through a smuggler. Mm, interesting. Thank you. Matt, you're an expert on irregular migration and transnational organized crime, right? So, I mean, we've just heard from Tasneem what self-smuggling is. Is it a unique Tunisian phenomenon or do you see that elsewhere as well? No, it's not unique to Tunisia, though it is perhaps more proliferant in Tunisia right now than anywhere else. But it's seen at other places along the North African coast. Uh, you see it in Morocco, you see it in Algeria. And in those previous two countries, it seems that self-smuggling was actually adapted a little bit earlier than Tunisia. Uh, so Tunisians kind of came a little bit late to the game on self-smuggling. But when they started engaging in it, they engaged in it in seemingly far greater numbers than what you saw in Algeria and Morocco. I think it's also important to point out on this, this issue of self-smuggling, one of the reasons that you do find it uh, in these three countries, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, but not in a place like Libya, is a differentiation of who's moving. So if you look at Libya, most of those that are embarking from the Libyan shoreline that engage with human smugglers are not Libyans. They're coming from Egypt or Bangladesh, West Africa. They're coming from quite far away, and they oftentimes don't have the connections to be able to procure boats or the maritime knowledge to be able to steer them. And so they're reliant on human smuggling networks. If you look at irregular migration from Tunisia, from Algeria, to a lesser degree from Morocco, it's the nationals of those countries. It's Tunisians, Algerians, and Moroccans that are the primary category of migrants. And the vast majority of the population in all of those countries lives relatively close to the seashore. Put another way, there's a vast amount of maritime knowledge 
that is embedded within those cultures and within the specific groups of migrants that are moving. And so it actually is much more feasible for irregular migrants from these countries to embark autonomously as Tasnim flagged. And I think for the purposes of thinking about the speed of irregular migration, how long it can actually take, how much forewarning governments can have, these things can come together relatively quickly and with very little forewarning either to uh, the governments of North African states or of those on the other side of the Mediterranean. Uh, you have the, the feasibility of large irregular migration ways, as you've seen in Tunisia over the course of 2020, 2021, 2022, you know, with very little indication prior to that event taking place that this was, in fact, going to take place. Thanks, Matt. I would also like you to actually talk about the differences between migration, smuggling and trafficking, because you also mentioned right, irregular migration just now. Um, a lot of the times these terms tend to be used interchangeably, but they are not the same, right? They're extremely different. Uh, and you're correct. They do tend to be used interchangeably. And you especially see politicians, especially European politicians, that tend to misdiagnose what's actually occurring. They refer heavily to human trafficking, to migrants as victims, when in fact, that's not really the case in a lot of instances. Now, if you look at human trafficking, or a way to, to think about it, is that the migrants in that instance are the product. They're what's bought, what's sold, and what is leveraged to the benefit of the traffickers. If you look at human smuggling, human smuggling is really a contract. Migrants are buying a service, and there might be issues that arise with that service. Human smugglers might cheat them, or they might, for example, uh, sell them out to security forces. But at the same time, that's very different from smugglers attempting to exploit migrants and use them as a product for making money. What you see in Tunisia, and I'd say what you see in most North African states, save for Libya, is that it's human smuggling that predominates. Uh, it's not human trafficking. There are instances of human trafficking that occur, without a doubt. But at the same time, the vast majority of migrants that are leaving from Tunisia look at their engagement with smugglers as effectively a contract, as a voluntary engagement that they're, they're getting into. So they don't look at themselves, they don't construe themselves as victims within this relationship. And they don't construe those that they're engaging with as traffickers. Rather, they look at them as, as smugglers, as individuals offering them a service and offering them a service that's quite in demand for them, the migrants, to, to get out of the country. Could you also tell us if, you know, smuggling migration and trafficking, whether they affect each other? For example, you know, does the fact that we're seeing an increase in human smuggling also increase the risk of human trafficking uh, or vice versa? It's, it's a good question, but I think as of right now, there's no indication that they're, they're positively correlated. So you can have quite a large increase in human smuggling without having an increase in human trafficking. The force, the fraud, the coercion, these other elements that are traditionally part of human trafficking are simply absent 
in many instances from the, the Tunisian context. I think, too, one thing to note is that where you see most human trafficking within other areas of North Africa, predominantly Libya, is along the route to the coast. You do see some trafficking that occurs once migrants reach the coast. You do see some trafficking that occurs from the Libyan coast to, to Europe. But at the same time, the vast uh, majority of the sort of exploitative conditions and extortion and other issues that occur within Libya are on the journey from the interior up to the coast. And so the likelihood of trafficking occurring in Tunisia is to a degree limited by the fact that most of those that are embarking, and though this has shifted as Tasnim can get into later on, most of those embarking are Tunisian. They're coming from relatively close. And also they're coming from the same social context as the smugglers themselves. And so it largely limits the, the risk of trafficking at present, paralleling the sharp rise in irregular migration and human smuggling that we've seen. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Tasnim, yeah, I want to turn to you next to talk about this this shift and this this changes, because I understand that there were two reports that came out in 2022 that talked about this increase in irregular migration. Matt just mentioned. Can you take us through some of the changes and shifts that you've seen, the trends that you've noticed throughout the year, whether they're continuing, do you see it continue, etc.? Yeah, sure. So as, as Matt had noted already, irregular migration has been on the rise basically since 2020 from Tunisia. And last year, this surge continued. We saw an increasing number of interceptions of irregular migrants by the Tunisian authorities and an increasing number of arrivals from Tunisia into Europe, particularly Italy. So, so that trend that has continued by the same time, we've noticed some, um, some developments, some changes, particularly in relation to the demography of arrivals in in Italy. So the majority of Tunisian arrivals in Italy continue to be young men, usually aged between 20 and and 35. But what we have seen last year and the year before is an increasing number of families, minors, minors both accompanied and unaccompanied who, uh, who are arriving in Italy. There are no exact data on how many families actually arrived in Italy, but one, one civil society organization in Tunisia estimates that around 500 families arrived in, in Italy last year. There was a notable increase also in the number of minors who are arriving in Italy. Another change relates to the rising migration by sub-Saharan migrants from, uh, from Tunisia, particularly if you look at figures of or interception data by the Tunisian security and armed forces, there is a notable increase in the share of foreign migrants of, of the total number of intercepted migrants in, in Tunisia. That signaled a major change from the previous year. So basically, we in 2021, foreign migrants represented around 30-35% of yearly interceptions. And this figure has jumped to 61% during 2022. So there was that, that was a major shift. We've seen an increasing number also of foreign migrants, particularly from Ivory Coast and Guinea, who uh, transit from Tunisia to arrive in Italy. In terms of, of the methods of, of human smuggling, as we mentioned earlier, 
journeys continues to be continue to be organized primarily through human smuggling networks, but we have seen that human self-smuggling has evolved. A major change last year is that human smuggling or self-smuggling was while it was previously restricted to Tunisians uh, from literal areas who have good knowledge of the sea. So th- those were the, the main, th- that was the main category of people using self-smuggling. This has changed last year with seeing particularly foreign migrants engaging in, in some forms of, uh, of self-smuggling, which, which I think denotes several things. I mean, primarily the increasing demand for irregular migration among uh, sub-Saharan migrants living in Tunisia, but also an increasing knowledge of the terrain and increased understanding of how smuggling works from Tunisia. So, so that's on the maritime route side. But in addition to that, we've seen the emergence of the Western Balkan route, which has particularly grew in popularity last year with over 6,000 migrants, Tunisian migrants apprehended on, 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 on the route. And so basically the popularity of the Balkan route was, 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 was triggered by the, the perceived safety of going through this route and particularly that Tunisians enjoyed a visa-free access to, to Serbia from where migrants would uh, contact smugglers to, 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 to take them through the land border with Hungary and into Western Europe. But we've seen around the end of last year, around think October, November, that um, Serbia removed or imposed visas on Tunisians, which means this route will greatly decrease in, in popularity among, um, among Tunisians. We've seen also last year that there was an increase in the numbers of land crossings into Tunisia, basically foreign migrants arriving through land routes, mostly through Algeria into Tunisia. I mean, overall numbers remain limited, but still there is a notable increase in people arriving, in migrants arriving through land routes. Great. Thank you so much for that summary, Tasneem. Um, the next question I have is actually for both of you. What are your biggest concerns when it comes to organized crime in Tunisia? Tasneem, would you like to start? Yeah, there are, I think, yeah, several important concerns when it comes to organized crime in, in Tunisia. What I feel is that is the biggest concern is that the continuous deterioration of socioeconomic conditions in the country can lead to a further increase in organized crime in, in the country, be it human smuggling, human trafficking or drug trafficking. And, and that the increase in organized crime, different forms of organized crime, or the potential convergence of different forms of organized crime can accentuate existing challenges, be it for public security, for the security forces, for, for public health also in the country. I mean, we've talked a lot about human smuggling, but another kind of proliferating smuggling is, is drug smuggling, cannabis smuggling into to the country. We see that drug consumption, particularly of cannabis, is on the rise there are large amounts of, of drugs that are being seized by the counter security forces. So there are demonstrable efforts to counter this form of organized crime. But uh, still, I mean, the, clearly this phenomenon remains a serious threat for the country, especially that, that, that we see an increasing number of people, an increasing consumption, an increasing demand for, uh, for these drugs. And this will have serious implications, not only for the consumers and those who fall victim into addiction, but for their families and, and the society uh, more, more broadly. So, and, and because of all these risks and, and, and threats, I think resorting to security-driven responses alone won't be enough to effectively address these challenges um, because we see because we see that the security forces are are strongly active in this area that are uh, heightened security measures there's 
border enforcement, but this isn't dissuading people. For instance, um, when it comes to human smuggling, it's not stopping people from risking their lives at sea. When it comes to, to drug consumption, it's not stopping people also from engaging in, in this business. So so definitely more more needs to be done to tackle the, the underlying factors of organized crime. Now, I want to spend the next few questions focusing on resilience, because we've talked quite a lot about the criminality aspects of it. And Tasnim, can you tell us why Tunisia has a fairly low resilience score? Is it because of a lack of strong institutions, laws and civil society networks, or are there any other reasons? There are different reasons for that. I mean, I wouldn't say it's shortage of laws because Tunisia has an arsenal of laws really on dealing with different forms of organized crime, including laws on human smuggling, human trafficking, terrorism. On the international level also, Tunisia has ratified most major international treaties pertaining to organized crime. Since 2011, there has been an increase in the capacities of the country's security forces in tackling organized crime, which has helped in part by enhanced international cooperation. But challenges remain. Challenges remain, particularly uh, in relation to the factors that enable organized crime, which do persist. I mean, if you look, for instance, at, at human smuggling, the social and economic drivers of irregular migration continue. I think as Matt noted also earlier, there, there are several geographic factors. I mean, the, the, the long coastline, the country's proximity to Europe, um, as we said, the, uh, the wide array of uh, smuggling options from, from the country and the nature of human smuggling itself, as Matt explained earlier. I mean, the existence of numerous small networks that can make it difficult for the security forces to dismantle networks and ensure complete control of, of, of the territory. So, so that's what security approaches alone cannot stem this phenomenon. In order to increase resilience in Tunisia, there needs to be more work on prevention, on tackling those underlying factors. Similarly, if, if we look at goods smuggling, I mean, um, there are socioeconomic factors that contribute to the growth and the, the, the continuation of, uh, of this phenomenon. Importantly, the fact that marginalized communities, uh, particularly in the border regions, rely on the trade, which which provides important an important source of, of revenue for, um, for for many people in regions that have high unemployment rates where economic activities or formal economic activities are are limited so so even good smuggling for example in certain regions isn't isn't seen as criminal because it's seen as as, as an alternative for for gaining a revenue now, Tasnim, I want to stay with you because at the beginning of our conversation today, you talked about the political crises in Tunisia and how that has contributed, you know, or how that is one of the, 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 the contributing factors to the fact that some of the criminality have increased over the past two years. Can you talk about how perhaps the crisis has also affected the ability of the state to respond to this increase in you know, criminality, particularly when it comes to human smuggling and whether the government is actually able to prioritise tackling this issue? Um, yes. So on political crisis in Tunisia, 
Um, so Tunisia has known a series of political crises basically since 2011, since the revolution. We, we've seen substantial political instability over, over the past decade. There were successive changes of government. This instability naturally has implications for the government's ability to think strategically and tackle such complex challenges. I mean, at the level of rhetoric, we saw that the different political actors that came to power since 2011 um, spoke of the need to prevent and fight against organized crime, but most of these ideas haven't materialized. So there were efforts, there were some efforts on fighting corruption, contraband. There were some successes uh, achieved, particularly in uh, tackling human trafficking. But if you look at the overall picture, we can say that the top priorities of the governments over the past 10 years were always to ensure some form of political stability, keep salaries running, stop the economic downturn. So as a result, there wasn't much focus or energy dedicated to tackling organized crime in, in, in a holistic manner. Matt, can we talk about state embedded actors and, you know, whether they're prevalent, uh, whether do you think they'll increase, whether they play a role in the increase in criminality that we're seeing, particularly around human smuggling in Tunisia? I think it's it's difficult to really know for sure. Certainly, there's a history of state embedded actors in Tunisia. If you look at the regime prior to the 2011 revolution that led by, by Ben Ali, it was notorious for for having essentially a an intersection of criminality and governance, and you you certainly saw some high profile scandals and some high profile examples even of of drug trafficking to Europe that was linked into individuals either within Tunisian government or close to the ruling family. Now we have seen. Uh, some low-level arrests for corruption or for uh, the transportation of narcotics amongst government officials in in Tunisia. But I do want to stress that it remains low-level. There's no indication at present that there's anything close to the sort of kind of high-profile networks enabling criminality that, for example, the Diohan cocaine seizure in Algeria discovered there. So essentially the the investigation within that uh, that particular instance identified uh, a host of actors that were both very close to to official power structures or in some cases coming from within the security and prosecutorial services that were ultimately implicated within uh, that cocaine bust. We haven't seen that in Tunisia. Though it's important to note that there is always a risk, especially as the volumes of criminality increase and as organized crime groups with very deep pockets, especially those that are trafficking in high value commodities such as uh, cocaine, come to focus upon Tunisia. And so at present, I think we need to be, need to be realistic that this isn't a substantial issue yet, but also put emphasis on the yet. And ensure that the sort of the sort of support to the government of Tunisia in enhancing its anti-corruption approaches, in enhancing its investigative uh, capacities, is done with the eye towards ensuring that state embedded actors don't emerge in the future, especially if the organized crime challenges worsen. 
Mm, thanks for that, Matt. And I, I'll come back to both of you on on. I mean, you gave sort of like an, a recommendation or an, an, an you know an idea on how to sort of prevent this from happening. I want to come back to you later um, on some of the other recommendations that you might have. I just have a few more questions before we wrap up. And Tasnim, one of the you know major concerns I think around the low resilience score was that it was in 2021, and you know since then we've had yet another political crisis in Tunisia, which means that the resilience score could possibly be even lower now, you know, that the country is now even less resilient to criminal activities. What is your take on that? Uh, in fact, the current political crisis in Tunisia comes in in continuation of, of past political uh, crises, because as, as, as we said previously, Tunisia has known um, substantial political stability since 2011. So political instability or political crisis isn't unique to the past one or two years. Of course, such an unstable and uh, fragile environment, which is marked by a combination or a complex economic, social and political crisis can create conditions in which crime, in which organized crime activities can, can, can flourish. I mean, the, the, the impact of concomitant crises, I mean, particularly the impact of the underlying economic um, d- difficulties can, uh, can, cr- create, can create conditions in which organized crime can, can, can flourish. But also I think we, we, we need to look at the, the overall picture. So the, the economic crisis that we see today is, is the result of, of slow economic reform processes that have failed to deliver uh, meaningful meaningful results or failed to deliver on people's expectations. There is also the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. The recovery started, but it remains generally um, slow. And in addition to that, um, there comes the, the the impact of the war in in Ukraine, which uh, substantially increased in import prices of of staples such as grains, sugar, and vegetable oil. So yeah, definitely the shortage in some food items can accentuate the need for smuggling for certain products. From Algeria, for example, we see that there is growing trend of smuggling food products from Algeria to make up for the shortage of some food uh, items in, in Tunisia. So, so yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the current complex crisis in all its di- dimensions, be it economic, social and political, can further weaken Tunisia's resilience. Are you both worried that you know, criminality will further increase and therefore, you know, make the situation much more difficult for both locals and and, and political stability. And Matt, you talked a little bit just now about what are some of the things that can be done to ensure that, you know, state embedded actors, that that there are no more, not an increase of state embedded actors that be involved in criminal networks. Do you have any other recommendations I think that there, there's been a high focus on the development of the capacity of the security forces over the course of the last 10 years, not just the, the Tunisian government uh, looking to reform its National Guard and National Police, but also substantial support that's uh, come from the international community. Now, the challenge that I see is that especially on issues of illicit markets, informality, organized crime, you know, all these are at the root social and economic phenomena. And you can have an impact if you have capable, well-equipped, well-trained security forces, but only up into a degree. 
you need to be able to also solve the social and economic side of the equation if you're really looking to forestall the growth of organized crime and curtail the degree of involvement by you know what effectively are large percentages of the Tunisian population in informal markets. This needs to be something that is very holistic, that's approached strategically, and isn't thought of through a law enforcement focused lens. It needs to begin by arresting the decline in living standards, the difficulties that Tunisians face in accessing basic commodities, the longer term challenges they face in uh, acquiring sufficient uh, jobs to support their families. And ultimately, it needs to look at the sort of social, political, and governance reform that makes Tunisia an easier place to live, not just for those who are connected, but for the broad majority of the population. Great. Thank you, Matt. Tasnim? Yes, I completely agree with what Matt said. I think the government needs to be more proactive in addressing the drivers that that lead to to different forms of organized crime, be it human smuggling or drug trafficking or, or, or others. I think it's to increase resilience, there there needs to be um, more focus on 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 prevention. That is, as said, Matt said, it's important to take a more holistic approach that goes through reinforcing the relevant institutional frameworks, improving governance, in, of course, increasing the capacities of the security forces, but also I think enhancing cooperation on on the one hand among state actors. That is between different ministries in Tunisia to, to, to ensure coherent and, and coordinated responses. And also, on the other hand, increasing cooperation and collaboration between state and non-state actors. That's the Tunisian civil um, civil society, which, which has um, blossomed over, over, over the, past, the past decade. So, so, so yes, more, a more proactive approach, more focus on prevention definitely is needed. This is where we leave it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. A big thank you to Tasnim and Matt for joining us today. You'll find a link to Matt's paper on irregular migration in Tunisia in the podcast notes. You'll also find a link to the Global Organized Crime Index, which lists 193 countries around the world and scores their levels of criminality and resilience. Remember that this is a free resource and can be accessed by anyone just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back in a few weeks with an episode on Mexico. I'm Dilawin. Thanks for listening.